Brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you. For those who are unable to be here due to concerns about coronavirus, let us pray for them, love them, serve them well. For those of you who are not in the sanctuary with us but are out elsewhere in the rest of the building watching, I greet you. Look forward to taking the Lord's Supper with you here shortly. I noticed there was lots of squirmy and squawky babies out there. If you're a parent of a squirmy and squawky baby, we love your squirmy and squawky baby. You don't need to feel at all like you need to leave, or if you need to spare the rest of us from your child. As we've encouraged one another often, whenever we hear kiddos in our gatherings, we want to remind ourselves that this is exactly the kind of faith that the Lord Jesus Christ demands of us when we come to him. And so they're good reminders of us. It also makes me feel a little bit at home. After we've been outside for a while and your kids have had a little bit of free reign, I don't know if this will feel normal to me if I don't have a scalf kid running by me in the middle of my sermon. But I'll do the best that I can. Tuesday, this Tuesday, is the most consequential day in history. Or at least that's what some would have us believe. That the fate of our nation rises and falls based on the outcome of Tuesday's election. That the fate of the very world, it seems, rises and falls on the votes that are cast and counted over the course of the next 48 to 72 hours. We'd be fools on the one side to think that nothing is at stake in Tuesday's election. Issues related to the unborn, issues related to the fiscal solvency of our own country and of the future of our children, issues related to justice, there's all kinds of issues that are at stake with this and with every election. But we would be even more foolish to think that everything is at stake with this election. And while many of us have agonized over choosing one of two less than ideal political paths, this election is far from the most important choice you or I will ever make. In Isaiah 34 and 35, we're presented with an infinitely more important decision, a decision with which much more is at stake. Will you set your heart on the salvation promised by God or by this world? Chapter 34 will show us what will become of everyone who chooses the world over Christ. But then in chapter 35, we'll see what becomes of those who choose Christ over world. Isaiah is going to essentially lead us by the hand all the way out to the brink of eternity, or all the way out to the brink of history, rather, where time merges into eternity. He's going to lift his eyes from his own circumstances in the 8th century to see how things are going to end up, quote, forever and ever. He sees the wicked judged. He sees the world deconstructed by God. He sees human existence renewed and his redeemed people no longer being enfeebled by sin. He'll see every tear wiped away. And along the way, his point is simply this. If you're taking notes, this would be my sermon in a sentence, the big idea. The salvation that you prefer now, whether earthly or heavenly, will dictate the direction you will go forever. The salvation you prefer now, whether earthly or heavenly, will dictate the direction you will go forever. We're going to be looking at two chapters in the book of Isaiah this morning. I encourage you to open there. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the pew backs around you. You can nudge your neighbor and ask him to send one to you. Isaiah is right in the middle of the Bible. We're going to be in chapters 34 and 35. Those are the big numbers of the chapters. And we're going to be looking at all of 34 and all of 35 in our limited time this morning. And in chapter 34, we're going to be exhorted to fear God, not the world. Chapter 34 will exhort us to fear God, not the world. But then in chapter 35, we're going to be exhorted to hope in God, not the world. That ultimately, we are to fear God and hope in God. We are not to fear the world or hope in the world. 
beginning in verse 1, chapter 34. Isaiah says, I want you to listen to what God has planned. And this chapter, verse 34, is all about God's judgment. Chapter 35 will be about God's salvation. 17 verses in chapter 34 devoted to judgment, only 10 devoted to salvation. You say, so does that mean that you're going to be spending 65% of your sermon today talking about the wrath of God? Well, yeah, I probably will. The late evangelist and apologist Francis Schaeffer said that if he were given an hour with a man, he would spend 45 minutes talking about the wrath of God and then 15 minutes talking about the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Isaiah takes the same tact with us this morning, giving the majority of his attention to that day that will come when the Lord fully and finally judges all sin and of the hope that those who trust in the Lord have. Verse 1, follow along with me. Isaiah says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. In chapter 33, which we looked at over the last couple of weeks, God extended a gospel invitation to all nations. He said, you need to tremble at your sin and you need to trust the Lord. He will save you. Well, in chapter 34, God's very next word to those who refuse him is not a word of grace. It's a word of judgment. Isaiah says, draw near. You need to hear, give attention. Why? Because in verses 2 through 10, God is going to want us to stop and think. Why is it crucial that we hear about God's plans? We're meant to stop and think about what does it mean then to live in a universe where God will judge evil. We might see that in fearing other people and bad candidates being elected and bad diseases being spread, that in our hearts, in reality, we all actually fear the wrong things. We need to hear about God's plans because we need to fear Him above everything. But why? Because what we're going to see in our text is that God has four things, four resources, so to speak. And each one of these four things, as you scan through the passage, are easily spotted because they're introduced by the word for. You can see them there in verse 2, again there in verse 5, again at the end of verse 6, and then the last one there in verse 8. And each one of these introductory fours is introducing a new thing, something that God possesses that guarantees the fearsome finality of final judgment. Then in verses 2 through 4, we're going to see that the Lord has wrath. In verse 5, he has a sword. In verses 6 and 7, he has a sacrifice. And finally, in verses 8 through 10, he has a day. What we're going to do is just take a few minutes. Let's take them one at a time, beginning in verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, and he has given them over for slaughter. Their slain will be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains will flow with their blood. All the hosts of heavens will rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine and like leaves falling from the fig tree. Why should we give attention, verse 1? Because first of all, verses 2 through 4, God has wrath. But God's wrath is not like our anger. Our anger toward others, toward our children, toward drivers on I-35. No, our wrath tends to be fitful and fickle and impure. But by the very perfection of God's moral nature, he cannot but be angry at sin. It is the necessary response of a perfectly holy God to uphold His moral authority in His universe. It is, to summarize, divine justice in action, rendering to everyone what they rightly deserve. And what we rightly deserve is graphically pictured there in detail in verse 3. But I want you to notice the scope of God's judgment in these verses. In verse 2, we see the nations are judged. But then, in verse 3, the lens zooms in on individual sinners. But then in verse 4, it zooms back out even further than we began, all the way back out to the way back to the entire cosmos. 
And what we see in verse four is that even the hosts of heaven, sun, moon, stars, all of them are going to rot away like dead leaves and like rotten fruit from the tree. The skies are going to be rolled back like a scroll. Sound familiar? We just sang that. That's to say that the Lord alone is the one who will determine the end of the story. He alone is the one who will close the book on human history. It won't come by any politician. It won't come by any political party. It won't come by any political platform. That the end of human history will come according to the sovereign purposes and the sovereign power of God. We need to give attention to these words, Isaiah says, first of all, because God has wrath. But in verse 5, we see that God has something else. God has a sword. For my sword, he says, has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, and with the fat and the kidney of rams. As Isaiah is preaching the present conflict with Assyria, remember we've been talking about that. The southern kingdom of Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem, is under siege from Assyria, facing the greatest threat in its history. It is an existential threat to its very existence. And yet, even as Isaiah is preaching, that threat of Assyria fades from view and another nation comes into view. And that nation, as we see here, is the nation of Edom. It's mentioned three times in these handful of verses. Why does Isaiah change the focus from the nation that's camped outside of their gates to an altogether different nation. You may remember that when Israel was journeying toward the promised land, they requested to pass through Edom. You can find that in Numbers chapter 20. Might be a good read this afternoon. Israel even offered the Edomites that they would pay for all of the water that they drank along the way. And why shouldn't Edom be hospitable to Israel? They were related, after all. You remember all the way back in Genesis, the Israelites are the ones that come from Jacob, and the Edomites are the ones that come from Esau. Jacob and Esau were brothers. So these are distant cousins, but Edom didn't treat them with hospitality. No, in fact, Edom hated Israel, and they refused to let them pass through, that in effect, they were blocking the very salvation that God had planned to bring into the world from the beginning. That he was going to redeem a people, bring them into a land that he promised, preserve them and keep them, for from that people will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and Edom is standing in the way, opposing God and opposing his gospel. Edom is being talked about here because it represents the antithesis to God's pilgrim people. That's why Isaiah singles them out. The ethos of Edomite culture is the spirit of the entire world. It's indicative of all people in all nations everywhere that is opposed to God and opposed to his gospel. What Isaiah is saying is that we have to get past Edom to be saved by God. We can't be swayed by Edom, turned by Edom, blocked by Edom. And Isaiah is saying in verses 5 and 6, I want you to draw near and I want you to hear because this is what God has to say to the hostile world about his great and final day of judgment toward those who reject him and resist his gospel. That in the end, the sword of God will fall on all those who oppose his Messiah and his people. And it will be, according to verse 6, sated with blood and gorged with fat. You say, well, that's weird imagery. All this imagery of blood and fat and various animals really just lead us to the third thing that God has. God has a sword in verses 5 and 6, but in verse 7, God has a sacrifice. Look at verse, in verse 6, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. There's more here to touch on than what we have time for, but to summarize, at the end of the age, all of the moral guilt of each person will be paid for by sacrifice. 
It would either be the sacrifice of Christ in their place or by the guilty themselves. Someone will be sacrificed for your sins. Either the sword of justice will fall on the Lord Jesus Christ as your substitute with you hidden in him as you have trusted and put your faith in him or it will fall on you. One way or the other, divine justice will be satisfied. God has wrath. God has a sword. And God will have a sacrifice. And we see fourthly, and finally, that God has a day. Verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden will be turned into pitch. And her soil into sulfur. And her land will become a burning pitch. Night and day it will not be quenched. Its smoke will go up forever. God's holiness demands a day of vengeance. He has it marked on his calendar. And that day, verse 9, will be, quote, for the cause of Zion, for the vindication of his people. He's not going to leave the church hanging at the end of the age. He hasn't forgotten about them. He's not going to leave them or forsake them. He will ultimately, at the end of the age, vindicate the faith of all those who have trusted in him and not in the world for salvation. And what we see here is the invincible world order of everything that we see around us, the, the building up of Babel, so to speak, this invincible civilization of man with all of its pride and all of its pomp and all of its arrogance and all of its godlessness. We see all of this being melted away, verse 10, into a volcanic wasteland. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, so to speak. Edom is a smoking wasteland. So Isaiah says, draw near. I need you to hear, Isaiah says, because God has wrath. He has a sword. He has a sacrifice, and he has a day. Evil has an expiration date. And that day will be both terrifying and final. As we see in verses 11 to 15, that day will bring no less than the unmaking of the entire world. Follow along with me. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine will possess it. The owl and the raven will dwell in it. It will stretch the line of confusion over the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all of its princes shall be nothing. Thorns will grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It will be a haunt of jackals and a boat of ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. Wild goats will cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Verses 11 to 13 show human civilization to be gone for good, utterly destroyed by God. The image that Isaiah is painting is one that would be familiar to Israel in that day with all of the warfare, looking at, out at Assyria and the, and the trail of blood and the trail of destruction that they had left behind. Entire kingdoms laid waste. And God is saying that is but a little bitty glimpse. It's like a two and a half minute trailer of the feature film that is coming on the day of the Lord. When all of... Human civilization opposed to God will be destroyed and there's not a single sign of life remaining. It looks like a kingdom that has been ransacked and destroyed such that the only sign of life are wild animals without fear of man coming in to live there. Ain't no hunters. Ain't no bow hunters. Nobody's going to eat them. Nobody's going to disturb them. They get the run of the land because God's judgment is final and it is perpetual without end. What the prophet sees here is God busily at work as a construction worker, putting on his hard hat, so to speak. Or better yet, he sees God as a deconstruction worker. In fact, a closer look at verse 11 reveals God stripping the creation down to its studs. Look at this. See the nouns you see there? Confusion and emptiness there in verse 11. Those are the Hebrew words tohu and bohu. Do you know where else you see these two words used together? Tohu and bohu? In Genesis 1-2, where we find the created substance of the world is described as 
tohu and bohu, formless and void. That in the beginning, the Lord took a formless and void creation and he imposed on it just by a simple act of his word, beauty and order and purpose, but then sin corrupted everything. So now in this final act of judgment against sin, God is going to decreate this world so that all that's remaining of it, no more beauty, no more order, no more purpose, all that has been corrupted, all that will be remaining at the end of God's judgment is tohu and bohu. It will be confused without order and it will be empty. You see, this is the ultimate fixer-upper show. I know some of you like that. My family and I just went on vacation a couple of weeks ago. We stopped by the silos in Waco. Overrated. We like a good fixer-upper show. And I think we all like a good fixer-upper show, don't we? Because there's something in us that loves the idea of something old and dilapidated and torn up and irreparable being transformed into something new and beautiful and glorious and usable. That we see a kind of analogy in each one of those houses to our own lives. Oh, that I would be transformed like that. Well, what we see here is the ultimate fixer-upper show that God is going to tear the entire creation down to its studs before he transforms it into something new and glorious and useful. God is going to destroy Edom with a precision that overlooks nothing. He will never, ever, ever, ever make peace with human society outside of Christ. It's too sinful. It's too proud It's too corrupt. So Isaiah looks us straight in the eye. He reads each one of our minds and and looks directly into our hearts and he says, Sinner, do not hold out for God to change his mind. Don't go to the end of your life crossing your fingers that what you'll find is a God who is weak and spineless and go back on his word Apart from Christ, don't think that when this day comes that God is going to lose his nerve. It's not going to happen. There's no plan. B. We all have to reckon with the details and the finality of the judgment of God. Every single one of us do. Therefore, verse 16, Isaiah says, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these will be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord is commanded and the Spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand is portioned out to them with the line and they shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in it. He says, read what God has written. He closes his appeal in chapter 24, this entire chapter, 17 verses of just judgment, one verse after another, graphically detailing what's going to happen at the end of history. And he's calling us not to simply have a casual acquaintance with God's written word, but to diligently inquire of it. Because what we'll see is that every one of the smallest details of God's final act of judgment, just as with his initial act of creation, all the way down to the smallest detail, including the little animals, will come to pass. There will not be a single jot and a single tittle. There will not be anything that God says will happen that will not happen. As he says it will happen and when he says it will happen. Friend, a casual acquaintance with God's word will leave us unprepared for that day. So we inquire in God's word. We come together and we preach God's word and we read God's word and we come to it often so that we might not be found unprepared and we might found rather by faith in Christ in that day. A chapter like this encourages us in at least a couple of ways. Friend, if you're here and you are not yet a Christian, it encourages you to be sober-minded about the reality that outside of Christ, what we have seen in this chapter is what awaits you if you will not trust him. That if you choose to trust in yourself and trust in this world for salvation, you will be destroyed and confronted by the wrath of God. But if you would put your trust in Christ, who is the very Son of God, existing eternally with the Father, and yet willingly 
became a man, living a life that you and I couldn't live, of perfect obedience to the law, and dying a death in the place of every single sinner who would just trust in him. Oh, to them belongs righteousness and full forgiveness of sins. To them he is risen from the dead, freeing them from the bondage of sin. He has has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives forevermore to make intercession for us such that he is able to save to the uttermost those who would call on him. Friend, listen to me. There is no name under heaven whereby men may be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will not trust in him and you would trust in this world, chapter 34 is what awaits you. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have seen the folly of this world and have turned instead trusted in God and his free offer of salvation in Christ, no longer trusting in ourselves, then it spurs us on to greater holiness and motivates us in our encouragement and discipleship of one another. Because the Bible says, apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. That we take seriously our sin, we take seriously the gospel, we take seriously the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives such that we would grow more and more in the image of Christ. Even Jesus himself said that those who love me obey my commandments. He's commissioned his church to make disciples going, therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. It is cultivating in spirit-renewed, Christ-believing saints from love and adoration for a Savior who would love them so much, the very obedience that he demands. That is what we aim to do as a church. We are an assurance of salvation co-op, locking arms together so that we might one day get home safely and see the Lord. And of course, that is exactly what chapter 35 is all about. Isaiah now transitions to address God's faithful remnant sojourning in this world. He says it's a wilderness. It's hard, but be faithful. He's going to tell them to encourage one another. He's going to tell them to keep their eyes forward, and he's going to show them the path all the way home. Follow along with me. Verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. When we read this, we should be thinking about the Exodus. It serves as a paradigm for God's salvation in the Bible. It's the background here as well. So you may remember how when Israel's exodus, the water that flowed for God's people from Iraq made the wilderness blossom, but just momentarily. But one day, according to verse 2, this wilderness is going to blossom not just momentarily, but abundantly. And that blossoming includes some familiar places. Last week in chapter 33, we saw how sin had introduced instability to the stability of Lebanon, had turned the beauty of Sharon into blight, and brought disorder and confusion to Carmel, the land of order. But now Isaiah sees a day when the barren wilderness, corrupted by sin, will be infused with the glory and the majesty of God. Look at the play on words. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. But where will it come from? from the glory of the Lord and the majesty of God. It will be infused, magnifying, reflecting, manifesting the glory and the majesty of God. It's the glory of the new creation. Isaiah sees a day when this barren wilderness will be infused with the glory and majesty of God. And this creation not only rejoices for God's redeemed, but rejoices with us. Oh, and it's here that we need to stop and remember that God's salvation is not just individual. It is cosmic. It is not just dealing with each individual person, but it is dealing with the whole cosmos and all of the structures that are bent against the glory of God, the gospel of God, and the image of God in his creation. That he will remake everything. It is a cosmic Salvation. It doesn't just include the souls of men, but the whole creation. And so I think it's at this point that we might wonder if this Old Testament background is what was on the Apostle Paul's mind when he wrote the following in Romans. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, waits for the appearing of Christ and the redemption and resurrection of his people. Why? Well, he goes on and says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Friends, this is how the gospel works, doesn't it? That God starts the renewing work of grace in the desert of our lives. Because salvation is not just when we stop being bad. (laughs) Salvation is when we begin to see with unfiltered eyes and enjoy with undiluted hearts the glory and the majesty of God. This is the chief end for which we have been made. And how is it that God does this? How does he end up showing us his glory? Where do we see it? Well, that's through the ministry of the gospel. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see God's glory and majesty in the face of Jesus. And we see the face of Jesus when the Holy Spirit makes him real to us. When we open up the scriptures and we seek and read from the book of the Lord. He illumines us to see that Christ is an overflowing fountain of life for thirsty sinners. How he is our wealth and our honor and our wisdom and our happiness. How his righteousness covers all of our guilt. How he is power that is able to conquer all of our sins. He is purity to wash away all of our filth. And he is the spiritual rock from which we drink and blossom abundantly. That the Spirit opens our eyes and helps us see the glory of God in Christ. And we see a fullness that can satisfy us forever. That's what we have in Jesus. So just think about it. What must God be like in his fullness? If according to verse 2, just the mere sight of the mere manifestation of his glory can transform us from death to life. What must he be like? It's for that reason that we need to commit to one another. Because often in our sojourning, we're tempted to grow complacent toward God or to believe that he's far off or that he's somehow abandoned us in the wilderness. And so we need to commit to encouraging one another. Look at verses 3 through 7. Strengthen weak hands, make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the... Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. These verses speak to our lives as sojourners in this world. And when Israel was taken out of Egypt, they didn't see blossoming right away. All they saw was wilderness. You ever feel that way? Only barrenness. The blossoming came as they trusted God and sojourned further into the wilderness toward the promised land. Isaiah knows that sojourners in the wilderness need to be encouraged in the hope of God. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. And then secondly, in verses 5 through 7, Isaiah knows that sojourners in the wilderness need to look forward to what lies ahead and not what lies behind. Follow along with me, verses 3 and 4. He says to strengthen weak hands. It means to build others up for personal action. But not only that, we're to make firm knees. That, uh, that implies stability and persistence. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us who have trusted in Christ are still yet sojourning through this life into the next, and we have to be durable for this journey. Because there are going to be so many temptations that are going to cause our hearts to grow anxious. Big things like politics and pandemics. Personal things like paychecks and parenting. Even small things that eventually grow into big distractions such that they are all that we see and we do not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
In those many moments, our hearts will be tempted to think that God doesn't really care for us. Perhaps that he's distanced himself from us or that he's forgotten about us, just as Israel felt in the wilderness. And for this reason, our hearts need to be nourished again and again with the gospel. Notice that verse 4 doesn't say, say to those who have an anxious heart, hey, you're doing great. Dig deep. Believe in yourself. Now, our hyper-focus on ourselves is typically why we grow so anxious to begin with, isn't it? That we have stored up for ourselves treasures on earth. And what happens to those? They get destroyed and they rust and they're stolen. It's interesting because it's right after that that Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. Why are you anxious? Because you've hoped in this world and not in the promises of God. You've stored up stuff in heaven that will be taken away for you. Of course you're anxious. You've not stored up for yourself those things that are imperishable and defiled stored for you in heaven. Those things which are found in Christ alone. Of course you're anxious. No, notice here that the ground of encouragement isn't looking at ourselves, at the good things that we're doing. No, the ground of our encouragement is, quote, your God. Brother and sister, you may be in the wilderness now But as Isaiah promises, he will come for you. And in that day, he will right every wrong committed against you, and he will reward in that day your trust in him. He will save you. Brothers and sisters, encouragement is one of the most important ways that God spreads his goodness and grace to us. The longer that I'm in ministry and the longer that I help others follow Jesus and the longer that others help me follow Jesus... I realize that while there is a place for exhorting and for rebuking and in correcting, what ultimately motivates us to keep going is encouragement. There's not a single one of us that can say on any given day, yep, I've received enough encouragement today. I'm a little fat on encouragement. Why don't you give me a good rebuke? That we have to commit ourselves to a ministry of encouragement. This is exactly why the elders of this church knew that in spite of the current pandemic in the face of colder weather, we couldn't go back to watching sermons in pajamas in our living room. The author of Hebrews was speaking to sojourners like us, facing challenges just like us when he wrote, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let us consider how to strengthen weak hands. Let us consider how to make firm, feeble knees. How do we do that? By not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. But rather, the author of Hebrews says, encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near, the Lord has a day, and it is drawing near. And our ministry to one another is a ministry of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, the world is dangerous. There's no doubt about it. The threats against us, against our bodies and our minds, are real. There are many things that can harm us, even kill us. But we remember from Isaiah 34 that we must fear God above all these things. And we see here in chapter 35 that sojourning through a dangerous wilderness requires endurance, and endurance requires encouragement. And God has so rigged it that the encouragement that you and I need to sojourn faithfully through this life and into the next comes by gathering with the church. Gathering together strengthens weak hands how we stir one another up to love and good deeds. Gathering together makes firm weak knees. That is, in praying God's word together and in reading and singing to one another, we encourage one another to press on as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. And gathering together is how the church speaks to ancient hearts because every single time we come to the Lord's Supper together, the church together is speaking publicly over each one of its members. It's the whole church act whereby we publicly say to one another, you belong to Jesus and you belong to me. And in the same way that Jesus cares for you, I care for you. 
And we're going to lock arms together through this life and into the next. We're going to persevere together and we're going to encourage each other to that end in Christ. Listen, the hearts of our elders when we wanted to gather together inside was not to be careless or cavalier in this season. We want to be wise and we want to be careful in every possible way that we can. But there is a way that we can be so careful in our lives that we cut ourselves off from the very encouragement that we need to actually endure pandemics and politics and every other Edomite ploy to discourage us from reaching our destinations. We need to be encouraged and we cannot be encouraged if we don't gather so we gather together. And if we got to wear masks, then you need to wear masks. And if we need to spread out, we need to spread out. And if we need to pray that the Lord gives us both the money and the space to find something bigger, then we need to trust that the Lord will provide that for us. Pray to that end, brothers and sisters. We're like a big foot in a little shoe now. But this is the reality that the Lord has us in and we'll be faithful in it. And while we want to operate with wisdom, we cannot neglect the word of God. And the means of grace that he's appointed for our enduring in this season into the next. So we need to encourage one another. But also, verses 5 and 7, we need to look forward to what lies ahead. This is why our encouragement to one another is always a forward-looking encouragement. That as we saw in chapter 34, the way of man is to make the inhabited uninhabitable. That's what our sin does. But here we see that the way of God is to take the barren and to make it abundant. What we spoil with sin, God renews through the Holy Spirit, breaking forth into our hearts like streams in a desert, bringing life and satisfying fullness in Jesus Christ. And notice here what we contribute to this glorious transformation in verses 5-6. We bring our blindness, our deafness, our lameness, and our silence. That's what we bring to the equation. But what does God bring? He gives sight, hearing, agility, joyful song. God's job description as Savior is to turn spiritual cripples like us into world beaters. You remember that this is how Jesus let the imprisoned John the Baptist know that he was the promised Messiah. John said, how do I know that you're the one? And he says, I'm doing this stuff. He gives sight, hearing agility and joyful song. And if you're a real Christian, then verses 5 through 7 is your spiritual biography. It's how the old evangelist Charles Wesley describes the gospel. He said, quote, hear him, you deaf, his praise, you dumb, your loosened tongues employ. In other words, praise him. Your tongues were once bound, but now they've been loosed for his glory. You blind, oh, behold your Savior and come and leap, you lame, leap for joy. He's going, this isn't just incidental to the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is what the gospel is. That every physical and spiritual affirmity will ultimately be gone. Neither our legs, nor our ears, nor our eyes, nor our hearts will get in our way anymore. And there will be no frozen chosen in the new creation. All inhibitions and worries of looking silly in front of others are going to completely melt away and there will be loud singing and lots of whooping like Charlene and there will be lots of leaping. Joni Erickson Tata, many of you know her as a quadriplegic. She lost the use of her hands and her legs after a terrible accident. In her biography, she shared that getting out of bed in the morning is a two-hour ordeal in which she's entirely dependent on others. That's every day. She also shared this. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, she says. But I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I will say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it. Because he knows me. 
And he will recognize me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then she says, the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin. And all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we've ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and when we're able to stop crying, (laughs) the Lord Jesus will wipe away our tears. She concludes, I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to. Because God will. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians that his whole life was aimed at reaching the resurrection by any means possible. By any means possible. He says, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, he said, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, brothers, I don't consider what I have made it my own, but one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's just saying what Joni's saying. Give me that day. Yeah, I'm going to vote. Yeah, I may or may not get coronavirus. But in the grand scheme of Isaiah 34 and 35, who gives a rip? Give me that day. We'll be wise. We'll walk carefully and cautiously, but not so carefully and not so cautiously that our lives can't be explained by the reality of a man being raised from the dead. That is what we've been called to do. We are a people of the resurrection and we strain forward to that day. Everything that we do and all of our encouraging to one another is looking forward to that day. Press on, brother. Press on, sister. That's our day. Tuesday is not our day. That is our day. Brothers and sisters, verses 3 and 7, 3 through 7, are not just what the Christian life needs to look like when things get really hard. Verses 3 through 7 in Isaiah 35 is the Christian life. There is no other kind of Christianity than this Christianity. So let us therefore commit to encouraging one another, to straining forward to what lies ahead, and we can be assured finally that as we do, God will get us all the way home safely. Love those babies' voices. They're just saying, preach on, preacher. (laughs) Mamas aren't saying that, but I know the babies are. Verse 8. And a highway will be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. It will, walk, it will belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they won't go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return to come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen. Rising above this wilderness of our lives is a highway called, quote, the way of holiness. Holiness is seriously, a seriously meant requirement. As we said earlier, apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. But it's a holiness not found in ourselves. It's a holiness that is imparted to us by Christ, worked out in us by his grace, And it's a narrow path that only the righteous can travel. In fact, God makes this way so obvious, he says, that even fools can travel it and not get lost. 
means you don't got to be really smart. In fact, fools and the unwise and babies, those are the ones that God saves to himself. Not the wise of this world. No, the, the wisdom of this world, the unclean, no matter how brilliant, they'll find no place on this way because the way of heaven is a narrow way found only in Christ. Oh, but brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, listen to me, you are certain to arrive at your destination. You cannot screw it up. You may prove in the end that you never belong to Christ truly, but if you belong to Christ truly, you will be vindicated in that day. You will get all the way home because according to verses 3 and 4, God has given you a church to encourage you. You will get all the way home because according to verses 5 and 7, he has overcome all of your spiritual frailties. Not only can we not derail ourselves, but actually according to verse 9, we see that there's no lions, there's no ravenous beast to harm us. In other words, there's no external threat that can prevent the redeemed of God from getting home. The sojourning of the redeemed gives way to arriving. In verse 10, arriving gives way to singing. And then finally, the joy that we've spent our entire lives searching for, but never quite reaching is fully realized. If you have an NIV Bible, it may get closer to capturing the sense of the phrase, they shall obtain gladness and joy. It says gladness and joy will overtake them. The sense of that word overtake is to seize or to grab hold of it, such to not let it go. We've all seen videos of the parents and spouses of, and children of soldiers greeting their loved one when they finally arrive home after a long tour of duty. That mom who seizes her son, the wife who seizes her husband, the sons and daughters that they grab hold of dad and they grab hold of mom and they will not let him go. That's the image. That when we finally arrive home, gladness and joy will seize us like a long-lost family member, and it will not let us go. And that at last, after such a long sojourn in this wilderness, the people of God and the joy of God are united for good. And they will never be separated because sorrow and sighing will flee away forever.